you that your word is indeed forever settled in the heavens. We will not wake up tomorrow and find that it is untrue. All your words are yea and amen. And so we pray, O oh God, that your word would be ministered into the depths of our soul. Give us humble and attentive hearts. Cast off all that might otherwise distract us, and we, uh, let us see Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. And please open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, for the last couple of months, we've been looking at Revelation 2 and 3, these letters written from the Lord Jesus through the pen of the Apostle John to the churches in an area known as Asia Minor. And just to understand the geography a little bit of Asia Minor, it, it, it's a place where the continents of Asia and Europe meet. It, it's known by its Greek name, Anatolia, uh, today, and it's part of modern Turkey. It's a peninsula with the Black Sea to the north, the Aegean Sea to the west, the Mediterranean to the south, and the peninsula extends westward from Asia up to Europe. The early Christians, we're talking in, in the, probably the first half of the first century, were zealous for church planting. And so uh, the gospel spread out from Palestine, and seven churches in Asia Minor were planted. And the Lord Jesus wrote these letters to these seven churches, giving them encouragement and promises and rebukes and warnings. Now, of all seven churches, the most positive feedback given is to the church at Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was originally founded by the Greek government as what was called a missionary city, but not missionary in terms of the gospel. They were established to spread Greek, to spread Hellenistic culture into Asia Minor. It was about 30 miles from Sardis, and it was the smallest of the, and probably least significant of the seven cities uh, that had churches in Asia Minor, but it was strategically important because of a highway that came through it. It was a city that had been prone to catastrophic earthquakes in the past, and because of that, many had actually moved away from the city, lived outside of the walls of the city because of fear of another earthquake. Despite the imperfections of the area, the Lord established a healthy church at Philadelphia. It was one that would last, actually the longest of the seven churches, the seven cities. According to Robert Murray McShane, one of my heroes, who was a, a Scottish pastor in the early 1800s, uh, at his time, he said Philadelphia had a population of about 2,000 people, 800 of whom were still practicing Christians spread about in five churches in the area. Now, this changed in the 1920s when there was a mass exodus of people from that area, but what we see is that Philadelphia remained the most faithful church in Asia Minor for the longest time. We learn a lot about that today. Let's listen to our Lord's words to the church at Philadelphia, Revelation 3, starting at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I've loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, 
I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Dear ones, I want you to think this morning of the perfect church. This is the church that gets all of its theology right. And when I say gets all of its theology right, I mean it agrees with what you already believe. It challenges you, but it doesn't step on your toes. The people are warm and friendly, but not nosy or meddlesome. The church is faithful to the Lord Jesus and well-loved in the community. Wouldn't you love to go to that church? I have bad news for you. First, that church doesn't exist this side of heaven. Second, if the perfect church existed, it wouldn't let us join. And third, if it did let us join, it wouldn't be the perfect church anymore. The church at Philadelphia wasn't a perfect church. It had its issues, undoubtedly, we know that because all the churches this side of glory do. It, it, it had theological confusion. It had people who were probably at odds with each other, didn't like each other, and didn't know how to be reconciled to each other. There were, in the midst, false believers and hypocrites. Sometimes it was too gentle on sin. Other times it was too tough. It missed gospel opportunities. It had serious enemies. Now, we might say, all right, we could forgive that. We could forgive all those things if it was a big church that had a lot going on. If you looked at it and thought, that's the church where God is at work. But it actually seems to have been a pretty small church. There's no strong mention here. I do think there's mention of persecution, but it's not, uh, it doesn't seem to be as great an issue as it was in other churches. I think perhaps because the church maybe was so small it was unnoticed in the community. But it was a faithful church. It was a church determined to keep the word. It, it was using what little influence it had for the sake of the gospel, and it was persevering patiently despite a million reasons not to do so. What I want to look at this morning from this text is what it looks like to be a faithful church. If I had one goal for First Scots, it would not be about size, it would not be about programs, it would not be about any of that. It would be that we are a faithful church. And so of all the seven churches in Asia Minor, this is the church that I think we at First Scots need to pay the most attention to that we might aspire after the same. We're going to see three things about the faithful church here. The first is the faithful church leans into the power of Christ. We rely on the power of Christ. Second, faithful church endures patiently under the word. And then third, faithful church hopes in the promises of God. So let's look at that. A faithful church first leans into the power of Christ. Look at David's, uh, Christ's words here in verse 8. The words of the Holy One, the true one, 
who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. In each of the, these letters to the churches, Christ identifies himself in different ways. And so he says here, he's the Holy One. And as the Holy One, he's the one who is gathering his church, sanctifying her by the washing of water with the word that he might present her as an offering to his Father. As the true one, he came to fulfill what his father had called him to do from before the foundation of the world. His purpose was to accomplish the salvation of all the men, women, and children who, before the foundation of the world, his father chose. But the heaviest emphasis here is on Christ, who has the key of David, one who opens a door no man can shut, and shuts a door no man can open. Now, these words are not original to Revelation chapter 3. They're actually taken from Isaiah 22. That's a passage that speaks of a man named Eliakim, and he's been the head of King Hezekiah's household. He was one of three men chosen to negotiate on behalf of the kingdom of Judah with an Assyrian ruler back in 2 Kings 18. And this was a treacherous situation for Judah. They knew that Assyria had already sacked. They had already conquered the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. But, and we're told back in Isaiah 22 that Eliakim held the key of the house of David. Now, you might read that and think, wow, Eliakim must have been really great and, and powerful, but he really wasn't. We know very little about him. But this is the point. Although the people of Judah were weak, the strength of God was upon them. That was how Eliakim had this key, because it was God who was at work. And the way that Judah survived was not leaning on their own wisdom and their own knowledge, but upon the power of Christ. Listen to Hezekiah's prayer in 2 Kings chapter 9, uh, 19, verse 19. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from this hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. This was a prayer of a weak people who knew the power of God. You know, the Bible often prefers weakness to strength when it comes to the people of God. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 11 for a moment. Second Corinthians 11, uh, verse 30. The Apostle Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. In other words, Paul is not going to boast about his intellect. He's not going to boast about his, his title. He says, I'm going to boast in the things that show my weakness. And then in, in, in chapter 12, he talks about his weakness. Whatever that thorn in the flesh is that God, he pleaded with God to take away, and God didn't take it away. And in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, God explains to Paul why. He says, my grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Why does the Bible seem to prefer weakness over strength? Now, we need to understand it's not as if strength is a bad thing, biblically speaking. You think about the heroes and the heroines of the faith. They had many strengths. Abraham was rich. David was a great warrior king. 
Moses was mighty in power, Solomon was wise, Esther was beautiful, Samson was strong, Paul was intelligent, and so on. And so when we hear weakness, this call to weakness, it's not as if Jesus is saying, hey, if you could all just automatically be dumb, ugly, and useless, that's really the key to a healthy church. So what is it that causes weakness to be so, in a sense, exalted in the Scriptures? Because there is a kind of strength that can be dangerous. See, the temptation in strength is that we begin to trust in ourselves rather than our God. And when a people know that they are weak, they know that the only thing, the only one they can trust in is God alone. It's not that strength is bad. It's that in realizing our strength, our weakness, we realize the strength of Christ. And we turn away from self-reliance and we lean into the power of God. And so weakness is a gift in some ways for the Christian. And in Revelation, we see this title, the one who holds the key of the house of David. It's talking about the power of the Lord Jesus. Now, I do think these repeated allusions, possibly in, in in this passage in Revelation 3, it's possible that the believers there had been shut out from the synagogue, that the Jews literally may have have excommunicated them and locked them out of the synagogue. That that seems to be perhaps what's behind the repeated references to a door that cannot be shut. It seems that they've been shut out of the synagogue. But the door, the open door that Jesus is talking about isn't the door of the synagogue, it's the door of heaven. This door that no man can open is is speaking of, of our salvation. See, because of sin, we were shut out. The door was closed in our faces, in a sense. And a million lifetimes, even if each one could be better than the previous, a million lifetimes would not be enough for you or me to do enough to warrant heaven, to open that door. And when we acknowledge that weakness, that we cannot do it on our own, and we grab hold of the strength of Christ, that's what we call faith. Faith denounces any ability we have to open the door on our own. And so we walk through the door by faith in what Christ has done. You see, the key is not human wisdom. The key is not majority opinion. The key is not conservative politics. These things can't save God's people. In fact, they need to be redeemed themselves. There is no man-made key to the door of heaven. It's a power that's invested in Christ alone as he alone can open and shut the door of the kingdom. And it is by Christ, it is Christ alone who can welcome sinners into heaven, not by our strength or might, but his. It's not only a door no man can open, but when he opens that door, no man is strong enough to shut it. This is what we call, theologically speaking, irresistible grace. His grace is, is so irresistible that he can save even the chief of sinners. He can convert the hardest of hearts. He can conquer the most rebellious of men and bring them into the kingdom. That power of Christ is something we are oblivious to until we realize our own weakness, until we realize what we ourselves 
are incapable of. You know, I almost named this sermon Letter to a Weak Church, and I thought, no, nobody's going to show up to hear that. We don't like thinking of ourselves as weak, do we? Well, Christians should. Have you learned that apart from Christ, you are powerless to enter the kingdom of heaven? Have you learned that you are so unholy apart from Christ that if you trust in your own goodness, the door will be shut in your face and remain locked for all eternity? Have we as a church learned that we are so weak and powerless that our only hope for the health, the growth, the faithfulness, and the future of this church rests not in how good the preaching is or how talented the leadership is, but how central Christ is? so that in our weakness, he might powerfully work. The faithful church starts not with its own power, but with its own weakness, not with pride, but with humility, because we know that the real power in the church must come from Christ Jesus, that he alone is the key that can open the door. And so the faithful church is the one who's not necessarily looking to the next big thing or trying to tell what the world what it wants to hear. The faithful church is not looking for great and dynamic leaders and heavy hitters. They're not relying on gimmicks and programs and games and sideshows. The faithful church constantly leans into the power of Christ trusting his might, praying for his favor, because he alone has the key to build his church. That's the first thing. The faithful church leans into the power of Christ. Second, the faithful church endures patiently under the word of God. Look at verse 8, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. And then verse 10, he says the same thing, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that's coming. We see patient endurance really in three ways in this passage. The faithful church endures in holiness. Jesus says here, you have kept my word. They haven't allowed the temptations of the world around them to change them. You know, this is one of the chief reasons the church has so little impact on the world today because the world has so much impact on the church. But Philadelphia was enduring in holiness. They know they're to be a holy people. We don't see, as we did in almost all of the other letters, warning against, warnings against immorality and worldliness and idolatry because they understood we have been set apart as a people holy to the Lord. Now, second, they were enduring in steadfastness. Uh, Philadelphia, I mentioned, probably wasn't enduring the same kind of persecution that other churches were, but they were enduring persecution. In fact, do, do, do we realize this as a church, that to say, I am a Christian, is to invite the world's persecution? Look with me at 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. The normative Christian experience for churches throughout history has been to have to endure steadfastly under persecution. And so the Apostle Paul, talking to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, says, 
all who desire to live a godly life, in other words, all who live holy lives, will be persecuted. Persecution sounds, sounds dreadful, doesn't it? Do you realize persecution really is a kind gift from the Lord that weans us from the natural love of the world that all of us have? And when we lose it all, <laughs> in a sense, we realize that we have it all. When we have it all, and we're going to see this with Laodicea next week, they had it all, and yet they were completely poor. The church at Philadelphia, we don't know how much persecution they were facing, but certainly they were facing it, and they remained steadfast. They're enduring patiently. The, the, the word here in Greek for patient endurance, it was originally a military term for one who refuses to back down. It, it came to be used of athletes, athlete running the race, and so we saw this back in Hebrews chapter 12, to run with perseverance. Don't, don't back down, don't slow down, press forward on the race marked out for you. Now, uh, Philadelphia knows that if they continue in holiness, then they will experience more and more persecution. If they remain faithful to Christ, and this is true for us as it was for them, to remain faithful, things will get difficult. It was like the earthquakes there in Philadelphia. It wasn't a question of, of if, but when. When is the next one going to happen? And the same was true for them with persecution. Life would have seemed easier. You know, maybe we can avoid persecution if we just compromise a little bit. If they would just participate in the immorality of the world around them, or at least countenance it, at least give approval of it. If they wouldn't be so dogmatic about things like sexuality or idolatry, if they would just bow down to Caesar... They could really just avoid persecution. And yet Christ commends them here. He says, you have not denied my name. You know what awaits you on the horizon, and yet you've not denied my name. You know, there, there's really a couple ways we deny his name. With our lips. Speaking hypocritically. And with our lives. When our lives don't match our profession that we are God's people. We belong to him. And so Christ commends them, you haven't denied my name, even in the face of looming persecution, you're enduring steadfastly. And then third, they were patiently enduring in usefulness. The faithful church doesn't look at the culture that's shifting and turning against it and just hunker down and hope maybe we can get by without being noticed. The word doesn't allow such a thing. And so look at verse 8, what Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, I think this is a different way Jesus is using open door here. Back in verse 7, the open door was speaking of our salvation, the door of heaven. Here, I think he's speaking of opportunity for gospel witness. He's speaking of an open door for usefulness and service for you to proclaim the gospel. When I say you, I don't mean pastors. 
I don't mean those in vocational ministry. I don't mean the elders. I mean you, the people in the pews. This is how the church has historically been built, through faithful men and women and children in the church who understood it was their duty to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. They did not leave that duty to the paid professionals. They understood there is an open door. That means opportunity. It means obligation. The Apostle Paul uh, used the same term in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. He spoke of a wide door for effective work that's open to me. And he says, but there are going to be many adversaries. And the same was true with Philadelphia. And Christ is saying here, despite how things may look on the surface, how you might be apt to worry about the future and what it's going to be like to be a Christian in Philadelphia or Beaufort, in the years to come. Don't just hunker down because I have set before you an opportunity for faithful, effective gospel ministry that you, First Scots, might bring the good news of the gospel to your families, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your workplaces, to your rotary club, to your sports teams, everywhere that God has providentially placed you. It is your opportunity and obligation to be useful to him for the sake of the gospel. And that's what the church at Philadelphia was doing. They were faithfully enduring. They didn't say, you know, this really isn't a good time for evangelism. This isn't really a good time to do outreach. We're too fragile. We're too weak. It's too risky. God says, you know, that's the perfect time. That's the right time. Such weakness gives wonderful opportunity to endure in the word, trusting the Lord for the things that only the Lord can do. When the world seems darkest and ministry seems most hopeless, those are often the times when God's light shines the brightest. And so the faithful church doesn't walk by sight but by faith. What, what, what door has God opened for us at Philadelphia? I think Jesus may be giving a clue in verse 9. He's speaking of the Jews who have turned their backs on the Christians, and he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. That certainly may be speaking of the final judgment, the final vindication of the saints in the final judgment, when every person will, either with great joy or great remorse, unimaginable regret confess that Jesus is Lord. Those who served him will confess him with joy. Those who rejected him will confess, will acknowledge their great failures. But I also think it's well within reason to think Christ is saying, be faithful in your witness, weak and powerless and pitiful as it may seem. If you are faithful in it, I will do things that you cannot even begin to imagine. Those relatives and friends who ostracized you because you're a Christian may soon be worshiping next to you by the power of the gospel. You may, you probably, I hope, if you're a Christian, you have people that you have probably been sharing the gospel with for years. It can be heartbreaking when you've done that. It can be discouraging to see no fruit born. You've tried different approaches. You've asked other people to talk to them. The door just won't seem to budge. But be faithful to your calling, dear ones. There's an open door that no man can shut. Philadelphia did not have much strength, but she was faithful, trusting in the power of God. 
And so she was useful. You and I can excuse ourselves, can't we, from sharing the gospel. We say things like, well, I really don't know what to say or, or how to do it. What if I get it wrong? What if I don't have all the answers? Any of those familiar to you at all? They're very familiar to me. I know my own heart. And so rather than using maybe the one talent that has been entrusted to us, we bury it. Do you know how you fail at evangelism? Do you know how to fail at sharing the gospel? Not by sharing the gospel and it gets rejected. You fail at evangelism by not talking to people about Christ. That's how we fail at evangelism. We fail at evangelism when we don't do it at all. The true child of God doesn't have strength in ourself, but despite brokenness and weakness, as we endure, Christ says to us, I'll give you strength. Enough for the day, enough for the moment, enough for the conversation, so that you may walk through the door of opportunities and tell sinners of my sovereign grace. See, remember, he's the one that opens, he's the one that closes your gospel presentation will never be so good it will take a dead sinner and bring them to life. That is his doing alone. You know, it can't be so bad <laughs> that it can keep people out of the kingdom. The worst gospel presentation I've ever done, the guy gets saved. I don't understand it, except it was the power of God at work through my own weakness. Weak as we may be, the Lord has given us an open door in Beaufort. The open door probably looks like the door to your neighbor's house. Or it may look like the, the co-worker in the office next to you. Children, it may look like the student in the desk next to yours in class. Are we making use of, of the providential opportunities God is giving? I have heard people say, I, don't, I don't, just don't have opportunities to share the gospel with people. That's simply untrue. Every person you meet is an opportunity to speak of Jesus Christ. It's what the faithful church must do. Will it always bear the fruit we want? No. Will it make life a little bit harder and perhaps will friends and neighbors and family turn against us? Possibly. But for the Christian this world and what this world thinks of us are not where our hope must lie. The faithful church, this is our third point, the faithful church hopes in, and we could say clings to, the promises of God. There are so many idols into which the church can invest our trust. We can trust in buildings, we can trust in preachers, we can trust in denominations, we can trust in methods, but in the end, no earthly thing can bear the weight of the church's hope. The only thing that can do that is the promises of God. And the Lord gives several wonderful promises here to the church at Philadelphia, that's what they're to cling to. When we're weak, we're persecuted, we're men and women in this world without a home. What do we look to? What do we cling to? The promises of God are their hope. 
the promises. You're going to see this in a moment, hopefully. The promises here fit the trials they are facing like a hand fits a glove. These promises are exactly what they need. The first, we're going to see it in verse 9, the first promise that they can cling to is vindication. Again, verse 9, Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they'll learn that I have loved you. Now, let, me, let me try to clarify a little bit about this. Those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and they're not, this is not anti-Semitism from the lips of our Lord Jesus. He's talking about those who ethnically are Jews, but they deny their Jewishness by rejecting the Messiah and persecuting the church. See, Jesus is saying here, they say they're God's people, but that's not who God's people really are. It's not someone's ethnicity that makes them a Jew. It's faith in the Savior. That's what Jesus said back in John 8. The, the Pharisees were boasting, we're of our father Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were of your father Abraham, you would have done the works that Abraham did. Well, what did Abraham do? Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, you would be looking to the gospel if you were truly Abraham's children. See, to reject Christ is really to reject Judaism because the whole purpose of Old Testament Judaism was to give birth to the Savior, to Jesus himself. And Christ in this promise is promising vindication. You see, dear ones, there is going to be a day where all people will see King Jesus. It'll be in the moment of the final judgment and even the hardest-hearted sinner will see with their own eyes that the Jesus whom they rejected for their whole life is the king of the universe and judge of all the earth. And they will see that those Christians whom they scorned and ridiculed and shut out and they said things in all likelihood like this, you know, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be suffering like this. You wouldn't be such a pitiful, powerless group if God really loved you. And Jesus says, they will know that you are loved by me. In that day, we'll receive our glorified bodies, and we will judge even the angels. Jesus is saying, I will vindicate you. That's not bad for a small, pitiful group that had no standing in the world. Jesus says, I will vindicate you. I will exalt you to the highest place in my kingdom. And those who persecute you, they will one day know that I loved you. It may be in this life through conversion. It may be in the final judgment. But regardless, don't worry about what the world thinks of you because you will one day be vindicated. Then the second promise is fortification. Jesus says in verse 12, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You, dear church, you appear so weak in the world's eyes. It's so tempting, isn't it? 
for the church to figure out what the matter of the day is that the world values, and then the church tries to jump on board with that. Most recently, it's, woke, uh, it's wokeness and social justice. The world seems to care about that. Maybe if we care about being woke, the world will care about us too, and they'll take us seriously. If we care about social justice, maybe the world will take us seriously. Jesus is saying here, you need to be content that the world cannot understand the gospel, and so they will not take you seriously. They will always look at the church as a weak, small, pitiful, poor organization. But to the one, verse 12, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Don't let your eyes deceive you, Christ is saying. Dear church, look to the things that are unseen because I will build you up. I will fortify you so that you will be made steady and strong as a pillar in the temple of my God. This imagery, again, it's likening likening Jesus to this doorkeeper who has swung the door wide open. He's the one who's given, who, who has the key that opens the bolt and flings wide the door that no one can shut. And now we, amazingly, are called pillars in the household of God. That's you who are rejected and scorned by men. You who are called God-forsaken. You who are small and struggling and weak. I will give you, Jesus is saying here, when he says that a privileged place in the temple of my God, a pillar in the temple of my God, he's saying, I will place you near the Holy One in the Holy of Holies in heaven. Though you may not feel like you can take one more step, you may not feel like you have one ounce of strength in this world, he says, I will fortify you to make you as strong as a pillar in the temple of my God. And then the third promise is possession. These amazing promises, they're just what the church needed to hear to remain faithful. These people, many of these believers at Philadelphia were probably faithful members of the synagogue. They were probably raised as Jews. Now, the Jewish world, your whole social, political, religious, and family life was all bound up together in Judaism. And by leaving Old Testament Judaism and being removed from the synagogue, They've lost it all because of Jesus. Families undoubtedly turned away from them. Jobs were lost. And Jesus is saying here, dear flock, dear children, your families may disown you. But guess what? You are mine. Look at verse 12. I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God and my own new name. That word my is used five times in that one verse. There's some things in that verse that aren't altogether clear, but if there's one thing Jesus wants them and us to hear as clearly as possible, it is you are my possession. You are my people. I know all that you've lost for my sake, but you are mine. Do you hear the the, the sweetness of the voice of Christ here? You've been kicked out of the synagogue, but you're mine. You're weak and powerless and walking into a world of great darkness and opposition, but you're mine. You've got trials before you of many kinds, but you are mine. I'll vindicate you. I'll fortify you. I'll make you my own possession. I'll keep you from the evil one. Are you weary and barely hanging on? 
you're mine. I'll see that you don't lose your crown. Are you weak and wobbly in the faith? I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Do you feel that, that who you are, your identity is nothing but rejection and shame and scorn in the world? And they ridicule you because you belong to me. Well, I'll give you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my own new name. There is not one drop of shame in the name of Jesus Christ. How significant is it for us as believers to interpret our whole world in light of the reality that we belong to Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul gives us a great glimpse of that in Acts chapter 27. He, he's traveling on his way to Rome. A terrible storm comes upon them. The men on the ship, this is a crew that's probably pretty salty and pretty seasoned, and they are terrified in the storm. And in verse 22 of Acts 27, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this night there stood an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. It wasn't the angel that calmed Paul's fears. It was the fact that he belonged to his God. Do you know the God whose you are and whom you serve? Are you able to see the chief identity of your life, not as a product of what family you were raised in, or what your annual salary looks like, or children, what your grades look like, or how good you are on the sports field, not in terms of your beauty, not in terms of how respected you are, even in the church. But the thing that defines you is Jesus Christ says you're mine. He's faithful to us, so we can remain faithful to him. It's true for us individually. It's true for us as a church corporately. This weekend, as you know, the temperatures absolutely plummeted all the way into the 50s. It was a blizzard for Beaufort, South Carolina. And so we built a fire in the fire pit. We had the wood. We didn't have any fat lighter. So we gathered leaves and sticks and all to start it. Well, those things ignite quickly, don't they? And they burn out just as quick. And they wouldn't really start the wood in the fire. It wouldn't ignite coals. You know, that's so easy to do as a church as well, to sort of flame up quickly, to try to do things, to make the church grow in numbers, and to build excitement and all that stuff, and to use schemes and programs and all of that, hoping to build up numbers. And so people look at the church and say, wow, that's a healthy church. That's a great church. I think if you had looked at Philadelphia, you would not have been the least bit impressed with it. But what was happening behind the scenes is that the coals of faithfulness were being lit. They're slow. They're unimpressive. And yet they burn for a very, very long time. When you're building a fire, a healthy fire is the one that has the steady fuel supply, not one that flames up quickly and burns out just as fast. The church that burns the longest isn't the one that's proud and flashy, but humble and faithful. That's the reality of Philadelphia. Seems to have been the weakest, the smallest, and in the world's eyes, the least impactful. Undoubtedly, at least in an earthly sense, other churches looked greater. But none of the churches in Asia Minor lasted as long. 
Do we long to be an enduring church so that the children born in this church can have children born in this church, who can have children born in this church, and that all those generations can hear the gospel? You know, that is an exceedingly rare thing. One in a hundred churches? One in a thousand churches? I don't know. If we want to be an enduringly faithful church, let's aim not for size, for fame, for respect, or any other worldly accolade. Let's aim to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, trusting the power of God, patiently enduring under the word of God, and clinging with all our might to the promises of God. How do we apply this text? I mentioned a minute ago, God's promises fit Philadelphia's trials like a hand in a glove. I do not know what trials you're facing. I don't know what hardships are going on in your life, what struggles are yours today. What I do know is that whatever they are, God's word contains the promises you need. Sometimes when life gets really hard, some people are driven to the word, others are driven away from it. To look away from the scriptures in times of hardships and suffering are to ensure that you endure without the hope that you need. But when you look to the scriptures and you remember that all God's promises are ours in Christ Jesus, he gives us grace to be faithful in the hour of trial. He, he mentions that here. I didn't get into it much, but he mentions here the hour of trial that's coming upon the world. I don't believe that he's saying you're going to be exempt from it. I believe he's saying you're going to be able to endure it faithfully because of me, because of my promises. What are you facing? God's promise. God's scriptures contain exactly the promises that you need. Find them, claim them, pray them, and cling to them. Second, Let's talk for a perfect church. Let's talk about a minute, uh, a perfect church for a moment. I don't believe there's a much better, sweeter church on the face of the earth today than First Scots. I'm biased. I get it. But your hunger for the word, the ways you love one another, your growing heart for evangelism, uh, those make this church a great blessing to shepherd. I think Pastor Walton would testify to the same. And yet, we as a church, we, we have areas for growth. I, as, as a pastor here, I have areas for growth. You as the members have areas that we can all grow in faithfulness. And we need to understand, uh, most of the time, growth in faithfulness does not start in a Martin Luther-like 95 theses being nailed to the wall, nailed to the door. There is a time for that. Most of the time, the way the church grows in faithfulness is simply for the ordinary average church member to be seeking Jesus Christ and growing in him day after day after day after day. That's really what growth and faithfulness is going to look like. And so if you'll go home and take a personal inventory, it, it is easy to say things, oh, I wish we did this differently. This is what the church gets wrong. Most of us do not take inventory of our own lives. Go home, ask this afternoon, how can I be more faithful in holiness? 
How can I be more steadfast in the face of trials? How can I be more useful? And if we as as a collection, a corporate group of people, a corporate body of people will ask these questions and then live these answers out corporately, you know what? We still won't be the perfect church. But as we increase in faithfulness, we will increasingly become the faithful church. And that's the church that Christ commands. Finally, a word to some of you in here in person. Uh, This is also going to be a word to those listening online. In the last three years, uh, streaming church, watching church online has become the normative experience for many people. There are certain providential hindrances that make online worship useful if somebody simply cannot physically gather with the saints. Then Praise God. That's why we do online uh, streams of our service. But in many cases, people have looked for a church, maybe for years, and they haven't found the perfect church. And so they find a church online that they watch week after week. There may be people in this room who have visited every church, and you always find something wrong with it. Please acknowledge this the church is faulty. Every church this side of heaven has its warts and its flaws. But that is no excuse for not joining the church if you are the Lord's people. See, being part of a church certainly doesn't make you a Christian, but being a Christian should make you desire to be part of the church. It won't be the perfect church, but if it's a faithful church, dive in. Use your gifts, submit to the leadership, pour your life into the people, worship morning and evening with them, pray down heaven alongside them. And the more you do, that imperfect church will increasingly become the perfect church for you right now. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for the church and that Jesus is building his church. Father, we confess we're an imperfect church. We have warts and flaws. We, we want to grow, we want to put those behind us, and yet we thank you that the standard is not perfection, but faithfulness. Jesus is our perfection, and his calling to us is to be faithful. We thank you that Philadelphia was a faithful church, and they endured for almost two millennium as a faithful church, undoubtedly planting other churches and sending out missionaries Father, may we do the same. You hold the door, you you open the door, no man can shut. You alone can do this, and we know that you can. We pray that you will make us a faithful people. In Jesus' name, amen.